Well, this morning our scriptures from John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. The Word was first, the Word present to God, God present to the Word. The Word was God, in readiness for God from day one. Everything was created through Him. Nothing, not one thing, came into being without Him. What came into existence was life, and the life was light to live by. The life light blazed out of the darkness. The darkness couldn't put it out. There once was a man, his name John, sent by God, to point out the way to the life light. He came to show everyone where to look, who to believe in. John was not himself the light. He was there to show the way to the light. The life light was the real thing. Every person entering life he brings into light. He was in the world. The world was there through him. And yet the world didn't even notice. He came to his own people, but they didn't want him. But whoever did want him, who believed he was who he claimed and would do what he said, he made to be their true selves, their child of God selves. These are the God-begotten, not blood-begotten, not flesh-begotten, not sex-begotten. The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like Father, like Son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. We want to begin a uh, short series uh, of uh, Advent messages uh, called The Greatest Gifts at Christmas. And I just want to mention one this morning. Uh, But first, what do you think our neighborhood needs? (laughs) It's a wide open question. But I, I want to suggest this morning one important response. I, I was a little reflective this week. Uh, Mark and I have just entered into our 38th year of ministry in the local church. I can hardly believe it myself. Kind of had to do the, get the calculator out and say, is that really true? And, uh, you know, when you first start out, uh, you have no real sense of what this journey will mean for you. You cannot know. And uh, you wonder if it'll be a five-year commitment or perhaps a ten-year commitment or a lifetime commitment. I guess you hope it'll be a lifetime commitment. Uh, and you watch as many of your colleagues uh, step away from church ministry after a few years for a whole variety of reasons. And uh, you observe as change comes uh, to your church uh, and your culture. Uh, and your world. And the one thing you notice that is constant is change. Change is always happening. Uh, Is this ever a different world than when Marg and I started in 1973? Is this ever a different world today? It was a huge deal in 1973. There was a renewal movement that was kind of moving through central and eastern Canada. Uh, It was called Key 73, and it was our very first year in in ministry, and we were launching into new territory in our our little town. 
And we were having such thing as a crusade. They hardly exist anymore. You see, times have changed. Uh, crusades don't work very well in our culture. But in this town-wide crusade, 1973, uh, we involved everyone. Every church was part of it. The Baptists, the Pentecostals, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the Anglicans, the Methodists, and the Roman Catholics. In our little community, uh, some of the priests in the Roman Catholic Church belong to a hockey team called the Flying Fathers. Anybody ever heard of the Flying Fathers? A few people. Uh, <laughs> it's a great name. Uh, wonderful hockey team. They were almost pros, and they would go on tour. Are we getting it there, Ken? <laughs> Sorry. We felt we were being very ecumenical. And uh, that was a, a word back in those days because we were being very inclusive in trying to do a common mission. Uh, some of the things that we did was uh, to put, pull all the doctors in the town together and all the pastors of the town and we squared off in a benefit hockey game. Uh, that was fun. And I was in charge of selling the tickets. Uh, I guess I thought not, not too many people would come to a game like that because, uh, you know, the docks playing the revs. And I just printed tons of tickets uh, on the Gestetner. Now, that was another age. You don't know what is... That's a duplicator. And the arena had room for 900... Good job. Uh, people. And the tickets we sold numbered over 1,400 uh, missing some attention to detail. Pastor Nord, we needed you there to number those tickets. And the fire marshal was not very impressed with us. And so the night of the hockey game, they were lined up down the streets. And we had to turn 500 away and play another game on another evening. We had a near riot. You know, I paid for this ticket. What do you mean I can't get in to watch this hockey game? But it was incredible to see the unity of that little town because all the revs came together and all the docks came together. And it, was, it said something about being part of a community. And these were some of the known leaders of the community. And people couldn't see, wait to see their pastor playing hockey or their doctor playing hockey. And, uh, of course, the revs uh, had a great advantage. Not only was God on our side, but... Uh, we had the Flying Fathers as well, and they were amazing, great hockey players, and the Revs shellacked the docks that night, uh, but a lot of fun. The church in 1973 was still very much an attractional church. In other words, people came to church because they were attracted to something that was happening in the church. It was a come-to church world. Uh, you know, if you build it, they will come not true anymore, is it? Then, of course, we've all heard of the seeker-sensitive era made popular by Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago. They recognized that people weren't inclined to come to church because they saw church as irrelevant and boring. And uh, those were the comments that got fed back at focus groups and uh, surveys and so on. And that stirred up a hornet's nest, and a lot of interesting approaches to Sunday churches began to happen. And sometimes the pendulum swings a little too far, and uh, the church really tried to do things to attract the community. In the 90s, the church was somewhat attractional, 
but really needing to freshen up its language and needing to understand the felt needs of people. We needed to create some entry points into church by being a little more sensitive to where people are at. And so we stopped using words like sanctification and propitiation because no one knew what they meant. Well, the days of the seeker service are, are now pretty much behind us. And we're talking now about missional churches. And you can Google the word missional, and in no time you'll have a thousand sites. It's a very popular word today. It means different things to different people, and it has different implications. Uh, and clearly I have a lot to learn about the word. But the one emphasis I see is that we are simply being reminded of our mandate. The mandate of Jesus to be missional in the world. The last few verses of the Gospel of Matthew. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. So I love the call back to mission. And that's not new at all. And that's the most important part of the word for me. And what I love even better is the fact that I'm a part of a community of faith here at TCC that just understands it, that just gets it and has from the word go. You understood the value of being in community right from the beginning. So uh, we've done many events uh, in the community to try to be as much a part of the community as we can be. In the old model, it was come to church. In the new model of the church plant, we've stopped trying to attract and we started being part of the community. And so the Winter Delight is hosted in the community and the Spring Carnival is hosted in the community and the Summer Barbecues are hosted in the community uh, where we rub shoulders with the people of the community. So God has put us back into the neighborhood, just exactly where we should be. So I ask, what do you think our neighborhood needs? And the answer is, you and me. Wherever we are in our neighborhood, we are needed. God needs us there. And he has us on mission there. I don't know if you know, but there are a lot of discouraged churches these days. As we try to figure out the world that we live in. Life is so different in 2011. But I don't think we need to be discouraged. In fact, there's a reason for great hope and great encouragement today. That Jesus is calling us back to our neighborhoods. And we're getting a chance to rethink how we will move forward in the coming years. And the mandate of being a part of a community is, is not a fad, of course. It's a Jesus mandate. It's a timeless calling. It's a Jesus calling. It's a biblical calling. The best example of missional is Jesus himself. I love the message translation that Pastor Norb read this morning, especially that verse John 1, 14. That's kind of the basis. The word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. 
The word, Jesus, became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. Isn't that powerful? He has come to be part of our neighborhood. The gift to the neighborhoods of all the world is the gift of a baby, Jesus. And he moved into our neighborhood. And what a quiet entry. They laid him in a feed box, close to the dirt and the dung and the cold and the darkness of a barn. There was a European monarch years ago who a couple of times a year would take off his royal garb and he would dress as a peasant and he would go out among the people. And his his officials worried about that a lot for his security. But he said, I cannot lead my people unless I know how they live. So he went among them. And God came as a baby to show us how to live to come right to our neighborhood and live among us. I read of a man who just could not wrap his mind around the Christian faith because he could not contemplate a God who would so humble himself that he'd become one of us. And then one day this man came upon an anthill and he tried to get close enough to the anthill to really study it. But every time he bent low, his shadow caused all the ants to scurry away. And he recognized to himself that the only way that he would ever come to know the colony of ants was if he could actually somehow become an ant himself and get in the colony and see what the colony was like. And that was the moment, he said, at which his conversion to the Christian faith began to put him on a journey. You know, I wonder if Jesus had to debate within himself about coming into the neighborhood of the world. I wonder if he had to put up a list of pros and cons, should I, should I not? And I I don't have any hesitation in answering that, that he didn't think about that at all. He came, like the father of the prodigal son, he was waiting for his son to come home and he was so anxious to have him come home that he held out his arms and welcomed him and ran to meet him. I think Jesus looked down and saw it all including the cross, including the shame. And he jumped into the arms of awaiting humanity, eager to become part of our neighborhoods, eager to be part of our lives, the gift that became incarnational to the world. He became one of us. A week ago, NASA launched a rocket. Did you watch that? Bound for Mars? It's on TV, that launch. The name of the rocket is called Curiosity. It has on board a rover that will travel around on a search for evidence that the planet of Mars might have been perhaps one time home to some microscopic life, or maybe is today. It'll take eight and a half months for Curiosity to make the 345 million mile journey to Mars. The one-ton Curiosity is a mobile, nuclear-powered laboratory holding 10 scientific instruments that will sample Martian soil and rocks, analyzing them on the spot. It also has a drill and a stone-zapping laser machine. And I think part of that technology comes from Canada. The primary goal of the $2.5 billion mission is to see whether Mars might have been hospitable for life or might even have been conducive to life now or in the future. 
We don't know much about Mars, a planet so far away from us. But we look at our world, a world where we have neighborhoods and friends and mountains and musicians and painters and philosophers and engineers. But in all we have, we know but one thing, that this is a visited planet. God has already been on ground on planet Earth, that Jesus came here and he came to our neighborhood. And the word says that Jesus moved into our neighborhood. So the most important question we can ask is, really, who is it that moved into our neighborhood? Who is it that's on the ground in our, in our world? And the New Testament speaks to that question. It's clear that the baby born in Bethlehem, the word became flesh, was God. He was not a man who became God. He was God who became a man. I had a gentleman at my door the other day telling me very clearly that Jesus was God's son. He believed that. But he wasn't fully God and he wasn't fully man. Jesus was not a human being who found favor in God's eyes and therefore was adopted as the son of God, as some will tell you today. He is and was eternally existing God, the Son, and the baby born at Bethlehem was God. The New Testament also affirms that the baby born at, at Bethlehem was God-made man. That God had come to our colony, that had taken on humanity. He'd become a real man. So we read in Philippians chapter 2 that though he was God... He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. God, the Son, really became a real man. The incarnation, God becoming man. One little footnote from history, but still very relevant today. The earliest heresy of the Christian church was called docetism. It's a Greek word meaning to seem. And the false teaching said that Jesus only seemed to have a physical body, but he didn't. He was a phantom man. He only appeared to have a body, but it was a ghost-like appearance. Not a denial of the divinity of Jesus, but a denial of the humanity of Jesus. And so there were great debates back in the early church, councils and Great pushbacks to this false teaching. And this wasn't just an academic exercise. This was very real for those who were fighting for the truth. Because they realized that if God did not become a real man, if, if his humanity was in some way unreal, if it was a disguise, if, if it was just a phantom, that this whole doctrine of salvation falls to the ground. This way about thinking of, of Christmas is still with us. We tend to think that the invasion uh, by God, the incarnation, is something like a, a, a telephone booth. We think of Clark Kent, who in one form of dress is a normal man, and then he goes into the telephone booth and he changes clothes and he becomes a superhuman being, a superman. And I was fascinated by the writing of Daryl Johnson from Regent College in Vancouver who says Jesus was not a superman 
who changed into a human costume to hide his divinity. He was fully man. The bullets did not bounce off. He did not invade our world with a protective shield. And because he was a real man, he can be the savior we need. We need a savior that we can identify with. Have you ever had somebody come to your rescue and, and, uh, and they just didn't say, yeah, I, I'm hurting for what you're going through. But they said to you, you know, I've been exactly in your spot. I've gone through exactly what you've gone through. And I know what you're going through. I really know. And you knew that they knew what you were going through. And, you know, you listen to a person like that and you appreciate a person like that because they've been there. And you see, that's why Jesus became human. He became one of us. And he's been through all the challenges of life. He knows. He must have banged his thumb with a hammer. He experienced hunger, probably more than any of us have ever known. He agonized over his impending death. And when his friend Lazarus was hurting, he felt it so deeply. He wept. It was all very real for Jesus. He gets it. And he was tempted in all things like we are tempted. This is the Savior. This is the one who has moved into our neighborhood. This is the God who became man, who became one of us and moved into our community. And he is the missional God. And this week, as I was reading along in the Life Journal, we come to that wonderful mandate in Matthew 28 where Jesus says, that I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. What do you think he's saying? The first clue is go. Don't be intent on staying and letting people come. No, go. And that's a great message for the church today. Go into all the world and make disciples. Go into your neighborhood and live like Jesus did, incarnationally. What does that mean? Jesus became one of us. God became man living among us. And the challenge is for us to live among our neighborhood. And we're living in a new world, a new culture, where people will no longer be inclined to just come to church. Not like they used to. Certainly some will be attracted by, they'll dial up the website and they'll come. But by far the majority of our world today are quite removed from coming to a church. Is there any encouragement? Oh, I think so. We can go and we can be the hands and feet of Jesus in our neighborhood. And that's what the Christian life was, was meant to be. One life rubbing up against another life. One neighbor with the good news caring for another neighbor who needs the good news. But how, you say, how, how is that going to happen? And the clues are all in the incarnation of God. God becoming a man. He became one of us. The call for the missional church is to be incarnational in our community. Meaning being the hands and feet of Jesus. To be one with our community. What did Jesus do? He humbled himself. He entered into the mainstream of humanity. He loved us. 
God came into the reality of our world. He came into the sinfulness of our world. And he didn't hold back. Isn't that great? He did not hold back. He came when our need was the greatest and he gave himself. What a wonderful example of incarnational living. To be part of the community where the need is the greatest. And friends, the need is great. There's pain in every home in your block. Every home. There's a need. Someone is looking for some love. Someone is looking for some support. Someone is looking for some care, some assistance, some understanding, some sense of belonging. And it's our call to our neighborhood. And the good news is that you don't have to be somebody that you're not. You are distinctly you. God made you that way. And he needs you in the neighborhood. We don't have to pattern ourselves after somebody else. Just look at how God has gifted you. How can that be a connection with your neighbor uh, and your neighborhood? Well, after all these years, I broke down and bought a snowblower. Marg has been urging me for years, you've got to get a snowblower. And I've been thinking, oh, one more thing in the grads, where will I put that? Well, now I have a snowblower, and it just doesn't seem to really snow. <laughs> and I was so anxious the other day, I took a few runs up and down the lawn. <laughs> the neighbors kind of look at me, he's clearing his lawn. No, I'm just seeing if this thing works. So I want it to snow. And then I think of the building project, and I say, no, 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 Lord, Lord don't let it snow, not yet. <laughs> So the Lord must think I'm pretty hard to please. On the one hand, I want to use my new snowblower. On the other hand, I don't want those steel workers to, have a, to, to work in the snow. And I don't want Robin to have to work in the snow. So in the end, I will certainly say, Lord, I can wait on the snow. I don't need to use my snowblower until January. Although I did take it out yesterday. There was just a skim. I could have just swept that off, but I had my snowblower going. But if I have a snowblower, I could use it to connect with the neighbors in my community. I could blow some of their snow, have a little fun doing it. What does it take to connect with my neighbors? How can I serve them? Some of you are already into block parties. That's a wonderful thing. Spread the word. I heard of a Christian man in our neighborhood who has all kinds of tools. And he's very unselfish. And he's, he's good at sharing with his neighbors. So he says to his neighbors, you can use any tool you want anytime. There's a sign-up sheet in the garage. Here's a key to the garage. You go in and just sign it out, as long as we know where it's at. And he has people coming back to his garage all the time, borrowing his stuff, signing it out. Don't you think that makes a huge statement? He's going to be looking for my snowblower. I'll bet that's what he's going to do. He's going to say, well, you use that, I'm going to use your snowblower. And he can have it. But it opens the doors for relationships to be built. And you can be the hands and feet of Jesus in your neighborhood. What do you think your neighborhood needs? It needs you. It needs me. Just like we need Jesus to come in and move into our neighborhood. 
He calls us to live very intentionally in our neighborhood. Any plans for Christmas with your neighbors? Any creative thinking? How could you bless the people up and down your street? Are you praying for your neighbors? God, help me to be available for you to use however you desire. There might be a need on our block. I'm here, Lord, if you could use me. And you know, I really believe this. God is already working in our neighborhoods. He's already there working. He's working in every life. He's working in every home. When you believe that, it gets very exciting. Just join God in what he's already doing. You'll make a difference. Around this communion table this morning, we remember the incarnation. The great commission of God that he came. He came as authentic God becoming authentic man. He came on mission. He came to somehow get among us and say, I love you. In spite of knowing that he would give his life for us. That was no deterrent. He didn't hold back. The word says while we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. So I invite you this morning to take a piece of bread and to take some juice from a cup and in your heart say a great big thank you to God, a huge thank you that he came among us, that he came among us, that he persevered in his mission and that he died on a cross and rose again. The Church of Scotland published a little liturgy goes this way. Come to the table, not because you're strong, but because you understand something of your own weakness. Come to the table not because you feel worthy, but because you have a sense of your own unworthiness. Come not because you love God a lot, but because you love God a little and you want to love God more. So I invite you to come this morning. And if you haven't come to a personal faith in Christ, you're welcome to allow the elements to pass by. Don't feel a pressure to participate. Just allow them to go by. Communion is intended to be received by those who have said yes to Christ. You love him. You're committed to him. You're finding your way in your journey with him. And you want to be missional for him in your neighborhood. And you see the areas of your life that you just need him to invade and help you with.